0: You're listening to the Rural Advancement Podcast. Rural Advancement provides resources to empower, equip, and encourage rural pastors and churches. Join our community by visiting us at ruraladvancement.com.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Rural Advancement. This is the podcast that is by rural leaders and for rural leaders. It is our goal every single week, week in and week out, to bring you content that is not just spoken to the rural church, but is spoken by people who get it. I am your host, Joe Epley, and this week I'm excited to continue a conversation that we started last week with author Alan Stanton, who wrote a book called uh, Reclaiming Rural. And I've just been so enjoying this conversation. He has a ton of insights uh, for pastors on how to love their community well and their church well. And so that's what we're going to dive into today. I really hope you enjoyed last week, but uh, let's continue the conversation. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's keep chatting here and kind of rolling through. Um, so you described the church as being a permanent stakeholder, like as a quality And you talk about that being one of the primary strengths of a rural church. Now, some pastors might not be aware of this perspective simply because it is uh, more of a community development, more of an economic development. And we talk about community stakeholders, you know.
0: So can you tell us what you mean by that permanent stakeholder term and how you see it as a strength? Yeah. So this is when I kind of step into like my community development side, right? Sure. Uh, So in rural places okay, let me back up. So it's community anchor institution or stakeholder, right? These are these organizations or these entities, these institutions that they really um, lead the various facets of the community. So most places we would think about like a university, a corporate headquarters, small businesses, philanthropies, hospitals, like all these kind of things, right? So in a place like Nashville, Tennessee, that there's a lot of them, right? Like there's tons of corporate headquarters there you have a lot of philanthropies those philanthropy dollars tend to stay in the metro area they don't really trickle down sure, yeah you have several, like in memphis we have a medical district and so like i can look out the window in my office and i can see like four other hospitals right <laughs> like oh, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> yeah and the rural town that i lived in last like we had one hospital it had 95 beds so <laughs> these same anchor institutions don't exist in rural places Um, right what we do have like there's not like corporate headquarters moving to rural america on the regular right Um, right might have a hospital like most a lot of hospitals rural hospitals are closing you might have like Mm -hmm. an elementary school but like that also might be closing or merging Yeah, a lot
1: of county school models or like regional school models a lot of
0: that stuff yeah and uh you might have a college but like it's really hard for a small private rural college or even a small public rural college right now what you do have a ton of is churches like everywhere right yeah yeah. yeah. (laughs) and really churches are a way that a lot of people engage in rural places if you look on a sunday morning in your congregation you have a pretty good cross section of the community i mean like at least in terms of expertise i was in a meeting the other day with a church that averages like 12 people on a sunday right And I was sitting in a room with four of them. And it was an occupate, a retired occupational therapist, a retired parole officer, a retired school teacher, a reading specialist, and a retired postal worker. And like you talk about the expertise that comes from all four of those, like the postal worker understands logistics and operations, right? The parole officer probably understands really like understands policy and how to get people through the policy. Like the teacher, like obviously can teach people and the occupational therapist, like, man, there's a whole lot of health information in that person. And you're looking at like, these are four people that really could share that expertise in really cool ways. And the church is the only place that you can actually do that. Um, Hmm. And even if you think about like, there's this concept called the sociological imagination, right? Okay. Uh, So I'm trying to remember the book it was in, like it's over there on my bookshelf somewhere. I think it's worlds apart. It's a book about like rural poverty. Uh, But the author says in a lot of places people experience and get a, an imagination about like what they want to do in life based on the people around them. In a rural place, particularly impoverished rural places, you're going to look at the people around you and that's going to decide your career path, right? So if, you're, oh, if your career path is like, like if your mom works as an x-ray tech, your dad works on the line, your uncle works in the military and your cousin works as like, I don't know, whatever. But like one of those sort of like blue collar jobs that's your entire perspective around what's possible to you, sure. right? And so, if you ask a student, like a student growing up in that, do you want to be a doctor? They'll say no, and it's not because they don't want to be a doctor. It's because they've never considered like what it means to be a doctor. Like they don't know that you have to go to undergrad and major in a certain thing, and you have to take the MCAT and you have to get a certain score, sure. you have to do a resident. Like that whole process is foreign to them, right? Yeah, they haven't seen but, it yet. Yeah. Um, the church in rural places, like the only place where you might see somebody with a different background than you. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and even pastors, pastors tend to be more educated than a lot of their parishioners in rural places. You might be the only person as a pastor that has advanced education, whether that's like a course of study type thing, like a non-degree program. Yeah. yeah or, or, or a true like, seminary, like seminary and multiple degrees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you probably have more higher education than people. So people are looking to you and seeing, okay, there's this whole other field or this whole other world that I didn't know about. And I, I think churches like have a really cool opportunity to embrace that, right? If you get to be that organization that has all these different fields of expertise, all these different people, this reach into the community, that's a really powerful place to be. I mean, and leverage that for something good and theological.
1: Yeah. Wow. I love that. I have uh, underestimated, I think just hearing you put it in crystal clear perspective of just like yeah, how much how much the church and its its DNA itself in a small town can really matter for for again, not even not even just the spiritual aspect, which is of course huge, but just for like life and seeing people continue to grow as people. It's really powerful. Yeah.
0: I mean, you even think about like like I always joke so every gosh, every state has like a small business association, right? Like a yep, or a small yep. business development corporation. And so often when somebody's starting a small business in a rural place, like they're not going to the small business development corporation they're going and asking Jim, who sits next to them in church, who also has a small business, how do I do X, right? Right. Just like the pure trust that exists within a small yeah. place. <laughs> this is my expert. Yeah, this is the person I'm going to rely on. Yeah. And so my question is like, why don't we ever leverage that, right? Like, why don't we take right. advantage of that and say like, we actually have the capacity to do really meaningful things. Wow.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's flip um, gears just a little bit because mm-hmm. I want to talk church vitality. Because um, obviously that's a huge way in which churches can yeah leverage kind of their their people and 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 find fresh ideas. But I was really intrigued. You mentioned three factors of church vitality. Can you give us a flyover of what those metrics are in that second chapter there?
0: Yeah. So these um, there are three indicators, right? And I I like to be clear that they're they're not metrics, right? They're indicators. Oh sure. Okay. And then. Churches have to kind of figure out the metrics around them for themselves. Oh, sure. Because metrics would be more measurable goals. Indicators are just the overall themes. Got it. My brain is wrapped around it. (laughs) Yeah. So part of what I like about this, like it builds on the strengths of the rural church, right? So strengths of a rural church, like they are the anchor institution, they're trusted, they have a wide swath of people and they're relational. And so when you look at like, what does a rural vital church have? The churches that I've studied and that other people have studied kind of have the same common things. So one, they have a strong theological identity and that is pretty much what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, really. They understand who they are in the story of God. And there are people who are asking questions about their faith. Or they're participating in the spiritual formation events, right? They're going to worship. They're connecting the sermons to their lived reality, like all these kind of things. Number two is they have a strong commitment to the community. So because they are so important to the community, they have to be committed to what's happening around them. And that that can play out in a lot of different ways, right? I'm not saying like it has to be tons of programming,
1: sure, but they at least yeah.
0: know the story and they know the good parts and the bad parts of the story. And they're listening to that. And most of all, they're seeing where God's at work in that, right? Sure. And then the last one is stewardship of resources. And when I talk about stewardship, like I don't mean just the money. Yeah. Like money is important. You have to be able to like pay your staff and keep the lights on, Um, pay your bills, great things. Um, But also like, do we appreciate all the, like all the different things that members of our church contribute, right? Their time, their expertise. Do you recognize all like the brain power that's sitting in the congregation, right? Are you leveraging that or asking people to use it for their faith? Do you know the other nonprofits around you? Do you know, do you know where people in your congregation are volunteering? right like because chances are they're living out their faith somehow um hopefully right yeah yeah. theoretically you You never know know how they're doing that um and are we building relationships based off of that right um or are we like really living into the resources that god has placed around us whether that's money or the time and talents or the work that people are already doing and then what I like to talk about with churches is like, okay, if you know that you need to have a strong theological identity, a strong commitment to community, and then the stewardship of resources, how are you as a congregation going to set the metrics internally to measure that? And churches have, have all sorts of creative ways to do this, right? Like, I knew a church, they like one pastor just gauged the types of questions he was getting in Bible study. Oh, right? wow. And that was a way of saying, like, are they growing in their theological identity? Are they yeah, growing? Yeah, do we in understand who we are in Christ? God? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Like, Are the questions getting better?
1: (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's not even that. That's not even like that, Uh, because sometimes I think when we start diving into these technical terms, because even strong theological identity, you know, stewardship resources to to break those down can feel daunting. Um, But like even just to say, man, hey, a simple way to measure this is are the questions getting more, you know, more understanding when it comes to Bible study? That's that's anybody can do that. Anybody can say,
0: I noticed that your question Got smarter. Like like it's like there (laughs) it is. It's like if you I mean, if you're like always saying at this baseline, right? Like I mean, Paul talks about like eventually you should be eating solid foods. So, you know, we want people to get to that. So how are you holding yourself accountable for that? Um, even like you know, the one, so we have to do these things called statistical tables in the United Methodist Church, and they're always the same questions. just like, how many people show up each month? Like Yes, how many... we have
1: something called uh, the ACMR and the Assemblies of God, and it's a very similar report where it's like, what are your members and diversity and baptisms and all the, you know, all the,
0: the metrics, you know? Right, <laughs> and, and that's fine. I mean, you have to do the report, right? But right. somebody somewhere that, like... has to know. Somebody has to know, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I, I kind of think about, like, my taxes. Like, sure, I don't look at my um, W-2 throughout the year, you know, like I fill yeah, it out yeah, yeah. <laughs> like in April. I don't double check it in July and go like, okay, how am I doing? You know. Yeah, like, no, like I. <laughs> that's not how I do budgeting, right? right? I budget based on like a number of things in my family, right? And so even like I, one of the metrics that I wish every church would use is like, how many people in my congregation are volunteering in other places? Because that'll show you a lot, right? Like, And then you can have conversations with, them, like, why did you pick this place to volunteer? And a lot of times in churches, like, it's a theological reason, right? Even if they're not able to articulate it as clearly as we would like, there's a deep spiritual, like, yes. I know that I'm supposed to live out my faith. And so I did that by volunteering at the homeless shelter, or I did that by volunteering, like, at the animal shelter, like, whatever it right. is. Right, like, whatever it is. Food gain, whatever. Like, that's not a hard thing to do. It's And really, no one else has to know, right? It's just kind of an internal right. thing. You can capture and watch over time.
1: Yeah, no, that's really cool. So theological identity, community engagement, mm-hmm. and uh, and I really, I really love you honing in because one of the things that has just repeated as a theme here on the podcast, and of course in your book, and obviously in your life and your work with churches, is this idea that that the word resource is like a broad. Term, you know, it's yeah. not just money, but it is time, and it is it is indeed expertise. You know, the the best idea could come from somebody who, because of their vocation and yeah. their work, they might see a different perspective. They might see a new need, and it could be, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of the phrase, uh, and I think you mentioned it already once on the podcast of Let's look for where the Holy Spirit's already at work. Yeah, you know, kind of let's look for where God's already doing something, and somebody's vocational context or their expertise might give us the roadmap for where God's trying to take a church. And, yeah. and I think so often we get pigeonholed into saying, well, I do have, do I have money or do I not have money? And I, and I think we need to consider, you know, cause, cause even in a church where there's a lot of young families, uh, your, your resource that you don't have a ton of is time, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. these, these families are busy. So you have to make sure there's a pastor you go, man, I don't have that resource. So how can I then leverage different things and then how can I focus differently? So I really loved kind of that deep dive to that. I thought that was a very untouched area.
0: Yeah. And what happens, I think, a lot of times is like as pastors start diving or as congregations start diving into this together, like one, I think they gain a new appreciation for what they do have. Like you were saying, I know a lot of pastors who get mad that, you know, their tithes are not as much as they would like for them to be. Yeah. One of the things we have to do in higher education when we raise money is like we count in kind donations. Right. So if you show up yeah. and you cook a meal like. Oh, sure. There's a numerical value assigned to that because sure. if we paid somebody to do that, it would cost this amount of money. And so I tell church wow. like, if you have to think about this in terms of money, like, do that and say, like, how much should we save by not having to pay for a cleaner, right? <laughs> like yeah, exactly. And then you kind of start to see, like, oh, man, like, we really are. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of dollars that we never realized that we had at our right. disposal because all these people are taking on this work. And it, it, gets, it helps you think about, like, I, I don't know, definitions in a different way, right?
1: Sure. What is, sure. If you well, and, and honestly, it fosters gratitude because I've I've been in church services where a pastor says, hey, the giving's down and we need more money. And like, yeah, great. But also, like, how different would it feel on a Sunday if you got up and said, man, I just want to take a second and appreciate. It. I know that that the hours, the materials, the resources, the know-how, you guys have contributed so much to building the kingdom of God. I mean, it's just a whole different sermon, whole different message. <laughs> A whole different moment, a whole different feeling, and the congregation might go, "Yeah, we would like to give more money because we feel appreciated yeah. and seen for what's going on." You know,
0: when I was in college, I was went to this large membership church when I was on staff there, and I, I like they paid me I don't know like two hundred dollars a month, right? Like yeah, whatever <laughs> it was, yeah, so part time job, Money well, no, like in quotes, yeah. you know, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and I got a congregational form letter. I mean, it went out to everybody in the congregation, but like sure, it was hey, we're off the mark by like a million dollars. So we're gonna be scheduling in-home visits with all of our parishioners to talk about how they can increase their giving. And okay. Okay. I was like, you are welcome to come to my apartment. Yeah, and I will choose the same thing I, eat, which is easy Mac.
1: Yeah. Right? Like- <laughs> no, I'm like, I don't know if you know my tax bracket, but it is not high. Okay. <laughs> right. Like <laughs>
0: Was yeah. the dumbest thing like it was yeah
1: you're like listen we can't we can't do this to everybody yeah <laughs> yeah no that's cool well speaking of spiritual journeys and just kind of like like diving into those theological concepts you talked about um a shift right that can happen in a pastor's mindset Um, When it comes from, and and it was really about evangelism and how we we relate to the world around us, because of course, as Christians, as pastors, as churches, we are saying the Great Commission is our bread and butter. We want to reach the world for Jesus. But a, a lot of times we have this dichotomy where we think we've been focusing on making disciples and evangelizing people when sometimes it actually comes across that we're just recruiting people to be a member of our church. And so talk about, you know, that difference and how can a pastor reclaim kind of true evangelism, you know?
0: Yeah. So one time I got on a plane and I was, so one, I'm really bad at faces. So, um, sure. Like (laughs) um, if people will sit next to me and like at school and they're like, Hey, and I'm like, I should know you, (laughs) like you know, that kind of thing. So I get on this plane and this dude, I sit next to this dude and he looks over and he's like, Hey, and I'm like, Oh crap. I should know this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm the same place. Like maybe he's in school with me. So, and then he's like, Oh, do you know Jesus? And I'm like, yeah, I'm in seminary. And that was kind of the end of the conversation. But I was thinking like, what happens if I say no? Like what is the end result right. of this conversation? Right. And so play out the best case scenario. Like we have a great conversation. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Yeah. We get on. What happens next? Right. Right? Like probably there's this pat on the head that's like, hey, come to my church or find a Bible believing church or whatever. Right. And that's the and that is a part of the Great Commission, but it's not the entirety of the Great Commission. Right. So there is two kind of folds to this, like baptize and teach. And when Jesus taught um, and this is I'm ripping off from like a theologian called Mortimer Arius, named Mortimer Arius. But he talked about like Jesus taught us in both words and actions right? So when we teach, we are also living into the social and like ethical reality that Jesus lived out. So when Jesus fed the 5,000, Jesus was not just saying like, I'm feeding you because you're hungry. Jesus was saying, um, this is what the kingdom of God looks like, right? Like we're going to take this generosity and scarcity and we're going to make it into abundance. This is who we are. Um, Like so when we teach, we're also teaching people how to practice. And so I think evangelism is not just like get a new participant into the church. It's about initiating people into these habits and of life, of the Christian life, right? Like sure. what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? Right. And that's theological, that's spiritual, that's intellectual, that's habits. That's well, and even habits. like if we if we look at the small town metaphor,
1: if I said, What does it mean to be a good citizen of your small town? People would probably say, if they're if they're aware, they'd go, Oh, I'd probably Attend, you know, some meetings. Let my voice be here would be contributing. Yeah. I'd be serving somewhere in my community. I would be, you know, trying to help people understand how great it is. I'd be, you know, they, they could they could framework that. But then it's like, well, what does it mean to be a citizen then of the Kingdom
0: of God? Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, and I think I think most of the time, rural churches do this better than we think we do, right? Um, sure, that's good. Yeah, like I because rural churches are the place where i feel like the life of the church and your life outside of church have the most intersection because sure. um in a large urban church i feel like a lot of times like you go you participate in the program and then you leave but rural right. churches like that is not it right like right. I mean, and there's so much intermingling i mean i remember there
1: was a uh, a funny kind of funny situation but i had this incredible discipline issue with a student Mm-hmm. Uh, like to the point where like we had to kick them out of our programming for a while and it was insane. And like the next day, they're like bagging groceries in our only grocery store for me. Yeah. And like that's I had I had less than twenty four hours of separation from like. Hi, we had to shatter a whole relationship, and yet we still inhabit the exact same bubble. You know, like right. there was
0: just no separation. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, like, there's no separation of identity between, like, my identity as a member of this church and my identity as, like, the bag boy at the grocery store. Right. Right. They're one and the same. Yeah. And so, I think, like, in today, in particular, the world, like, where everything is so programmatic, I think rural churches. Can actually shine as an example of like what does real evangelism look like and that's letting inviting people to participate in the kingdom of God and initiating them into those habits and routines of the kingdom of God. It's it's a little bit different way of thinking about evangelism, but like I think when Jesus and in, like invited us to be disciples, it was holistic. It wasn't just right you know, convert and then come to church. It was this is the pattern of your life now. So yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I really enjoy that. And I think uh, it's always worth the refresher because I do think, yeah, sometimes in the rural church, we might nail that, but oftentimes we still are stuck. I mean, this has been part of our greater narrative of this book and this conversation of saying, Hey, participation can't be the end goal. You know, there's gotta be more happening. So, uh, well, let's, uh, let's talk about another term that just kind of jumps in into your, shows up in your book. Um, But the, the term deep solidarity, right? How it ties to the sense of biblical community, and uh, and so give us a definition of that. You know, what does that mean in the context of what you were saying in the book? And then how can a rural pastor kind of apply this concept to their rural context?
0: Yeah. So this is a term from a theologian at Vanderbilt named Georg Rieger. And the concept is like it emphasizes that we're all part of the same community and we all have a responsibility to the same community. Right. Um, and so there's this really big focus here, and not separating ourselves into like us and them. So a lot of, I mean, even even in rural context, right? You go to a rural place, and there are some churches that are all full of like the wealthier sort of um, historical. Yeah, thing, yeah. the right?
1: the mayor or the certain last names go here, or like it's a very yeah, it's a
0: very high profile even in some rural context. Yeah. yeah, and then you go out a little bit and like that's the blue collar church, right? Yeah, and yeah. So deep solidarity reminds us we are part of the same community. We're part mm-hmm. of the same faith. We're part of the same thing. And we're all working towards the same end goal. So I think what, what Rieger gets right, and I'll talk about what I think he gets wrong in a minute. Sure. <laughs> but I think sure. what he gets right is like, we have to remember that we are all part of the same community. So there is no, there's no split between like the high profile church in the rural town and the smaller church like we are, we are the people that are invested in this community. We're all invested in this community. Otherwise, like you end up, there's a really great book that came out right after I wrote my book called Dividing Paradise. And it's a book about oh, sure. like, exploring rural gentrification, right? And how a bunch of wealthy people moving into a rural area can really disrupt the patterns of that community. Yeah. Um, and I think like what Rieger says is deep solidarity is like kind of the counter to that, right? Like we don't try to disrupt the community. We want the community to be strong. Now, I think the weakness of it is that sometimes like it can just swap out different things, like the different end goal. Right. And it can really remove the theological thing. So, you know, Steve Long is a theologian at SMU um, and he follows a lot of like what Alistair McIntyre talks about. But it's this idea that you have to have a clear telos and a clear end goal. And for us as Christians, like our end goal is soteriological and eschatological, right? We believe in the kingdom of God. And we want people to be part of that kingdom of God, right? right? And so, for us, this is really like this deep solidarity is evangelism. It's mm-hmm. uh, tying people into the reality that like we are working towards the kingdom of God. We pray that every Sunday, right? Your kingdom come, as it is on earth, as it is in heaven, right? Um, that's what we're trying to do. So, I I think that's where if we can keep that telos in mind, if we keep that end goal in mind, that this is really focused on our on our commitment to christ um then the deep solder can be helpful like without disrupting it and turning it into like some sort of like just social feel-good non-profit thing
1: yeah yeah because yeah. because for sure and obviously practically speaking Uh, this deep solidarity could lead to partnerships within churches or or between churches, you know, that could be really practical where a pastor goes, hey, you're not, you're not quite the same as me, but also you are the same as me. And so we're going to work together, you know, but I agree that, that, yeah, as as long as we keep the end goal in mind of saying, hey, we're here to create disciples, not just create a strong rural community. It's like, well, then, well, then we can utilize it instead of being, you know, kind of
0: overwhelmed by it, you know? Right. Because I, and I think like one of the, one of the challenges that, and, and this is one of the questions I get a lot, right, is, Um, what distinguishes what I'm talking about as a rural church from like any other nonprofit. And that's a great question, right? Because I'm, I'm talking a lot about like social change and community development. Yes. Yeah.
1: And a lot of nonprofits focus
0: on that. There's, there's more than just the church focused on that. Yeah. Yeah. But what I'm trying to argue is like, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Right. And we're not sure we're doing this and it helps our communities, but we're also doing this as a way to invite people to participate in the realities of the kingdom of God. Like I want people at the end of their participation and whatever the rural church is doing to have seen Jesus and seen the kingdom mm. of God, right? Wow, and what a powerful God. statement. Yeah.
1: Well, cool. Well, in the closing of the book, I, and and this, I'm about to brush up against like every pastor's most frustrating Sunday, like right here, okay? Yeah. Because any pastor will probably express frustration or or solidarity with this idea where I say. We come into rural congregations, or maybe we've been there a while, and we'll say something to the effect of, "Man, I've had all these good ideas, and my people just refuse to get on board." Or, "Man, I came into this, and I see these immediate needs, but nobody seems to be ready to run with me." And so, it's it, it honestly, it can kill it can kill local ministry because a pastor oh, yeah. might say, "Man, I've hit this wall for three years." And I just can't do it. And they they cut and run, you know, but uh, you talk about how pastors should not expect congregants like kind of as a default, we should say, Hey, we're not going to expect congregants to be ready for whatever journey we feel like they need to take to get from unhealthy to healthy or, or unsuccessful to successful or, or whatever words you want to use. Um, so how can a pastor take the role of coach and kind of encourager? and why is it so important they do so?
0: Yeah. So I think like I've been in that situation, right. Where I felt like I'm beating my head against the wall. And I remember leaving a meeting one time where I, I was so frustrated. Cause I, like, we were just on different planets around the term missions and community engagement. Right. Sure, yeah. Like I was like, we need to do more missions. And they were like, we're doing them already. And I'm like, no, we're not. Not <laughs> what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're doing a barbecue dinner as a fundraiser. Like that's not a mission. Um, right. and One of my parishioners kind of pulled me aside after the meeting and she said, you know, when you say mission and missions, you mean something different than what they're hearing. Because what they're hearing is like for most of these people's lives, the mission is to provide a place of worship for people in this community and to keep this church open so that we can do that. Yeah, for sure. And they have been doing that faithfully for 200 years. So technically they've actually been on mission as it has been described to them right and so for me it's like i had to take a step back and say like okay and i remember thinking like my church was brought into the methodist connection by francis asbury in 1789 right oh cool dang what a history yeah right it's really cool francis Um, asbury i love it um which is not like uncommon in the southeast like oh no probably not actually but still kind of cool it's kind of cool yeah um but what that made me realize is like i am one percent of this church church's life like my leadership is so tiny in the lifespan of this church so there's so much that happened before me and there's so much that happened after me and so the first thing i kind of had to realize like i need to have more grace for my parishioners right they're living out their faith in the best way they know how and whether or not that's where i would like for them to be they they either don't know how to name it or i don't know how to help them name it right Mm -hmm. and so i need to help them learn how to name it and we need to come up with some common definitions and I, I think I get really frustrated. You know, I teach a lot of cohorts with pastors. And one of the things that frustrates me is like pastors will say, um, my church doesn't want to do anything. Yeah, and they I don't want to grow. They don't want to change. They don't want to Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, probably not. <laughs> You're probably like you they're probably doing stuff already, um, and it goes unnoticed. And we need to figure out how to talk about that, like in a better mm-hmm. way, right? And you know, I was like, I was in a church the other day and the pastor had told me, like, this church doesn't want to do anything, this church what had happened was actually like the church was really supportive. It was one or two people who were really afraid of a couple yeah. of things, right? So by alleviating that fear and understanding that fear, you can yeah. really get past it, right? So I have grace. And then the other thing I remind pastors is like change takes a lot of time. Yeah. And and especially in a rural church. I mean, yeah.
1: we had one guy we were talking about uh, like a, a subject in ministry and he said something that was very telling. He was a man in his eighties and it was a subject I'm passionate about that maybe let's say a younger generation is more passionate about. And he said, You'll have to forgive me, he said, but but men of God that I've respected have taught me this this way my entire life. Yeah. And so I it, it stopped me in my tracks. I was like, Well, I can't be like angry with you, you yeah. know, like when you've had 80 years of respected people teach you this one way, and now I'm suddenly coming in saying, Hey, what if we did it different? And it just is so foreign, but not like malicious, you know.
0: No, and so, like, I mean, if my whole identity is tied up. So Alistair McIntyre talks about like your virtues and your talent, like the things that get you towards your talents, so your traditions, narratives and practices. Right. And those are the things that we know ourselves by. Like, I know myself through the traditions that I have. And I know myself by the story I tell and sure. the way I live out that story. You can't just go in and disrupt those things. Yeah, for a whole <laughs> church that's been there for yeah. 100,
1: 200 years. I mean, like, you you don't have the right in five years to be like, let's change everything.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like, let's get rid of so all nice. your traditions and the way yeah. you understand your faith, right? But then the other thing is, like, um, you know, Moses crossed the Red Sea mm-hmm. and then wandered through the desert forever. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, it wasn't a beeline to the promised land. And Yeah. If Moses has to make a few detours to get to where he's trying to go, I should expect that I have to make more.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. If
0: he's going to take 40 years, I better be ready for, you know, something. So. Yeah, because, like, if Moses can't do it, like, I definitely can. <laughs> like, I don't ever think I'm going to be a better leader than Moses. Sure, so. sure.
1: Well, I love that. Well, uh, I guess the last question I want to ask you as we kind of wind up our conversation is... Uh, if I remember right, you've written more than one book.
0: You know, I could be wrong, but have you written more than one book? So I am uh, working on my second book right now. It's about okay. the vocation of the small membership church. Theoretically, it should be out in 2025, 2024. Um, it's like two years overdue, and my publisher's just being really nice <laughs> to me. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, let's,
1: uh, let's talk about where we can find your current book, Reclaiming Rural. Yeah. Where can people yeah. buy that? Do you have a preference, or is it just
0: like, hey, jump on Amazon, check it out? So I mean the easiest way is always Amazon, right? But uh what I will do is uh there's a code that if you go to um romanandlittlefield.com or romanlittlefield.com, um there's a code and I'll I'll make sure it gets seen you for the show notes, but it's um R R and L or R L F and F um 30 and that'll give you a 30% discount. So you can pick it up that way. Um and then you know, if people ever have questions or comments, like I always say this, but no one ever takes me up on it. Feel free to email me. Like, I love hearing about people's churches and their experiences in churches. My email, I'll send it to you too for the show notes, but it's astanton at ozarks.edu. And I I love just hearing the stories of rural churches and um, sharing the stories of a lot of other people so that people can see all the great things that are happening in rural places. So yeah, feel free to reach out.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for oh, more uh, than your sorry.
0: <laughs> no, that's really great. I'm really I love it.
1: I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you. Like, every week i'm like hey if you want encouragement feedback ideas for the show like like here's my email and like you know the one time someone reached out to me was to uh, correct me on like a historical thing that i had thrown in there like actually i think it's this i was like cool
0: thanks <laughs> you know that I you know. But I, uh, but I get some like i'm always so i do these webinars and stuff and i'm always like oh yeah like i want to hear what because people in the like q a will tell me all these great stories about the church i'm like yeah you know me so i can like yeah. And like partially it gets I want to know about it, but then like, I want to share it with other people. Yeah. And Cause there's a ton of great does. stories out there. Yeah. It's, oh, it's yeah. every time.
1: <laughs> but, Sorry. uh, I, uh, I want to say uh last thing is just kind of, thank you, Alan. I, I really appreciate your heart and, uh, I really recommend
0: this book to anybody. So, well, thanks. I appreciate you having me today and taking time.
1: Well, hey, once again, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in to our two-part conversation with Alan Stanton. As we said, uh, all those links will be in the show notes to check out his book, as they were last week. But uh, I just want to say thanks again. Obviously, again, this is the podcast that is by rural leaders for rural leaders. We hope that you feel seen and heard and encouraged and challenged. Uh, once again, I've been your host, Joe Epley. Feel free to share this podcast any way you find fit. And uh, we will see you next week.